Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health, whether you're trying to improve your movement, your overall optimal wellness, or maybe you want to get outside or do the activities that you love. We are here to support you and provide you with information to get you back to where you want to be. And with that, today we are going to be headed over to the pool Actually, just right outside of the pool because we are going to be talking about dry land training for swimmers. And with swimming, swimming is one of the few sports where we actually see a huge emphasis on uh, different cross-training techniques by being within the pool and working outside of the pool. And so the dry land training is the stuff that they do outside of the pool that helps to better the swimmers within the pool. So I brought on Markel Ling, who has worked with Olympic swimmers in the past and also is with the First Colony Swim Team, who focuses on functional dry land training to better the performance of the swimmers over at their swim team and to make sure that they're not overtraining the swimmers and providing the right amount of mobility along with stability and strength within their training programs. So listen in as I talk with Markel all about dry land training from a functional standpoint. Markel Ling has been coaching for First Colony Swim Team since 2001 and has been the full-time dryland director at FCST since 2014. She has trained swimmers of all skill levels, including four-times Olympic medalist Simone Manuel. She received the Order of Ecos Award from the United States Olympic Committee for involvements with Simone's Olympic medals. Please welcome Markel to the show. Hello. Thank you, Markel, for coming on. I'm excited to talk about swimming because it's a topic that I don't get the opportunity to talk about a whole lot, but I have worked with a few swimmers myself, so there's quite a few questions that I have for you. But before we get into that, let's uh, let's talk about how you got started working with swimmers. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be a guest and um, love to talk about what I love to do, so... Um, I started working with swimmers actually while I was still swimming. So I swam club growing up. I was like the normal kid in Texas that did summer league first and then progressed to club swimming. And um, I was not a good swimmer. I loved to swim and I loved to train and work hard, but I never reached any high level meets or anything. Um, but I showed, uh, I just had a real interest in coaching. And so while I was actually still in high school when I was 17, my coach said, well, I can give you a part-time job coaching and see how you like it. They thought I'd hate it and get out of it. And I just loved it. And I've been doing that ever since. So I've um, taken some time intermittently to work with at a physical therapy office. And I worked at an orthopedic surgeon's office. But all the while, I still coached swimming either on the side or full-time back and forth kind of just because I loved it and loved being with the swimmers. So... Um, it's, I guess you could say swimming's in my blood and, you know, I love being in the water, being around the water. So I've just always been passionate about working with the swimmers. I do find it interesting that it seems like a lot of people that work with really high level athletes in a specific sport tend to not be a high level athlete themselves within that sport. So it's like, at least for me, and I've seen that with myself with the wrestlers that I work with, I was kind of a mediocre wrestler, but I've been able to um, dive deep into the sport and really analyze the sport, and it's worked really well into coaching high-level wrestlers, and I'm sure that's the same way for you as well. I completely agree with you. It, maybe it's like the old saying goes, uh, those who can't teach, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe those who can't do it super, super well teach. So um, I think sometimes people who are very talented in this sport, and this is a vast generalization, of course, but um, they maybe don't have to dive as deep into it, like you said, and you maybe not, 
you don't have to know all the ins and outs that you would if you don't have that natural talent. And so I think me, like you were saying, you know, since I wasn't a great swimmer, I had to work so hard on stroke technique and so hard on the little things all the time. And of course the high level ones are working on it all the time, but it really comes to them. But for me, I have to tear apart the strokes and really focus on all the intricacies that maybe if I had been a high level swimmer would have come to me more naturally. So I definitely agree with you on that point that that often happens. And I've heard stories of people who are, you know, however many time Olympic gold medalists or these really high level collegiate level swimmers and those kind of things. And then they get this coaching job because of their name. And everyone's like, um, just cause you swam fast doesn't mean you can coach well. So <laughs> I hear that a lot. So not saying it doesn't happen. Cause I've obviously seen some cases of it for sure. Um, but I do agree with you on that point that I often see that. Now, with competitive swimming, it's one of those uh, sports where I see a lot of the focus on training both inside of the pool and outside of the pool. And this tends to start at a pretty young age compared to a lot of other sports. And they put a lot of focus on kind of that cross-training mentality. Um, Can you talk about why it's so important in the swimming world to focus on dry land training and uh, training within the pool? Uh, I'd love to. It's actually interesting because what we see right now with dry land co- training combined with swimming is not what you were seeing even three, five, seven, ten years ago. Uh, the implementation of dry land training is a newer thing and especially implementation of it at the young age. Um, looking across the country, the teams who really focus on a specific dry land training program for their young athletes isn't near as extensive as I think it should be. Um, Granted, I'm a little biased in that area, but um, one of the things I think that we see why you really need the dry land training is injury prevention. The typical swimmer is usually extremely extremely hypermobile and in their joints, and um, it's very, very easy for a swimmer to get overuse injuries. And so I think teams are starting to see that if you build their stability, if you strengthen their core, you know, all these things that people talk about, um, that that can really prevent those injuries. I think also it's hard to gain as much strength in the water as we might want them to have for racing. So, so much of their time is spent, you know, swimming up and down that pool and working on their aerobic base or working on their stroke technique. And um, we want to really give them adequate, adequate strength. And so we find that they can build that strength easier and faster on the land. And then it can carry over into the water if it's done properly. So our program, we start the dry land training with the youngest group, which would be our white group is what we call it. And that would be kids who can swim a 25 freestyle and a 25 backstroke. Um, If they can do that and they're on our competitive team, they're doing dry land and they're doing it every single practice, which doesn't happen on every team. But it's something that definitely happens on our team because I tell the coaches they have to. (laughs) So you mentioned that uh, a lot of swimmers are very hypermobile throughout their body. Is there specific areas like their shoulders that are hypermobile or do you tend to find uh, most of their joints are hypermobile? I find that most of their joints are. I think that their shoulders tend to be a little more hypermobile than the rest of their bodies, but um, I think it kind of carries throughout. And, you know, you even see people speaking at clinics and they'll say, oh, if you see two people and one of them can hyperextend their knee and one of them can't, that's the one you want on the team. You want the one that can hyperextend it. And it's just one of those things that it can really lead to a lot of injuries, but the best swimmers, I mean, you take Michael Phelps and you look at even his pre-meet routine or pre-race routine that happens behind the block, just those arms flailing around his body. You can see how much mobility is there just with the naked eye. And um, 
those things are really, really a huge advantage in the water and the ability to have hyperextension in the knees and that low back for the dolphin kicks. And um, at one point, USA Swimming released a statistic that talked about just the huge number of people on the U.S. national team that had basically diagnosable hypermobility in all their joints, you know, multidirectional joint instability or whatever you want to call it. And it's, is it that those that have that end up being more successful or is it that the sport helps create that, you know, chicken egg scenario, but we really do see that those who do very, very well in the sport, if they can stay healthy, tend to have that hypermobility kind of everywhere throughout their bodies. So it seems like the hypermobility is something that's definitely a benefit for swimming. So when you're working on your dry land training, you have to be cautious not to uh, start limiting their hypermobility in a way that would uh, take away from their swimming abilities. So how do you manage that line? So it's really interesting. We don't do, um, on our team, we don't do a lot of heavy lifting and we don't want to do anything to inhibit their mobility, but we want to just make sure we give their joint enough stability where it can function like it's supposed to. And, you know, you don't have things moving in directions they're not supposed to, but we're not trying to limit, you know, I don't want to bulk them up. I don't want them to be immobile. I don't want them to um, not be able to move through the water like they're supposed to. And just looking at the intricacies of the strokes, the amount of rotation that needs to happen in the shoulder, the movement that needs to happen at the low back. If I bulk them up and get them super strong and take away, like you said, that hypermobility, then I'm taking away one of their greatest assets. So we do a lot of body weight exercises, a lot of stability exercises, a lot of things with kettlebells and um, just different lighter weight pieces of equipment that allows them to still go through that full range of motion all the time, but giving them strength and stability kind of at the end ranges so they can still reach that point, but they don't go past that healthy point. I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> so makes but, sense to me. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking him full through the full range of motion and the different exercises I'm doing, I'm trying to get them into functional movements they're actually doing and then creating strength at the extremes of the spectrum. So talking about functional movements, a lot of the dry land training, we see people doing weightlifting and other traditional type of exercises. What is more of a functional sports specific approach to training outside of the pool? You know, that's a great question. And if you look across the full spectrum in swimming, you see all of it. You see people doing CrossFit. You see people doing things like, you know, P90X and heavy Olympic lifts and everyone has their take on what they think is better. Um, I definitely take on a more functional approach. So we do a lot of things on the ground. We do a lot of things in an upright position, but still going through the ranges of motion and the movements that they would be in the water. You could take a traditional squat and maybe some programs would really load them up with weight and do a heavy squat so they can build the strength. But I'm going to take a squat and I'm going to say, well, what position are we trying to focus on? Are we working on the initiation of the kick and breaststroke? Are we trying to work on the snap of the kick and butterfly? I'm going to put them in those different positions. And then I'm going to say, what else do I need to accomplish? Well, you're in the water. You have all this instability because of the moving surface that you're in. So maybe I'm going to put them on a half foam roller to do that. And maybe I'm going to put some weights, light weights in their hands and have them extend overhead like they would be at that phase of the kick. With, you know, what their arms would be doing at that phase of the kick in the stroke. Um, you know, we do, we do some weights, but most people wouldn't even say that we do weights because of how light our weights are. Even at our senior elite program, the lightest weight we use is a 10-pound dumbbell. Um, but you could take a traditional exercise like a overhead shoulder press. Well, we're going to take that exercise and we're going to tweak it. Say we're working on backstroke or freestyle, 
they're going to be pressing overhead, but as they press overhead, they're going to rotate their hips with the same timing they would for that extension in their freestyle or backstroke. So their whole body is going through a movement like they would in the water. Instead of just isolating out their shoulder for strength, we're trying to make it a functional movement so that they can use their strength when they need it in the water. So a lot of the movements that you're putting them through, it's creating a little bit of strength, but it's also keeping that mobility that they do have. So you're able to really solidify that type of motion within their body while improving the strength of their stroke or the strength of their kick, right? Exactly. So, you know, a lot of them are things, specific movements that they would be doing in the water. But like you said, you know, adding a little strength to that. And we do a lot of jumping and a lot of things like that to work coming off the walls and exploding into a streamline and getting off the block um, that is in a more functional position. Like maybe we start in a push-up position and they're driving their knees into their chest and then shooting back out. You know, that's a jump they do all the time or laying on their back and shooting into a tight tuck position and shooting out into a streamline. So they're building more strength because they're on the land, but they're still going through a lot of the same movements they would be in the water. So earlier you mentioned that for the swimmers that you work with, within their uh, daily swim practices, you also incorporate a lot of dry land training. Over here in Washington, from what I've seen with a lot of the swimming programs, is people will have dry land training before school, and then after school they might have their swimming practice, and then after their swimming practice, if they swim for a club team, then they have another club team. So in that type of scenario, it seems like a lot of the athletes are overworking their bodies. Can you talk about if that's true with the swimming world, or is this just kind of one of those components within swimming that uh, we need to accept? You know, this is a really interesting question and something I am pretty passionate about. Um, if you look back 10, 20 years, I mean, even as recently as when I was swimming competitively, coaches kind of believed that if a little is good, a lot is good, and a whole, whole lot is really good. And you saw swimmers just with overuse injuries I, all the time. I ended up not being able to swim in college, largely in part because of my shoulder injury. And um, that was just devastating to me. And that was so common. It was basically, if you swam, you were going to have injuries. And it's not an impact sport. You know, this is not football or, <laughs> you know, something like that. We shouldn't be having that number of injuries. So the pendulum kind of swung and people realized that, okay, we don't need quite as much. But there is still a large amount of swimming that goes on for these higher level athletes. And even if you look at 12 and unders, 10 and unders, some teams still push the yardage and they just do more and more and more and more. Um, in my opinion, the smarter teams have learned that even if they want to have a two hour practice or a two and a half hour practice, maybe 30, 45, an hour of that is dry land training. And that's one way that injuries have been reduced. I know on our team specifically, um, anytime our, we go into holiday training or we go into summer training, um, we also add more dry land training. So over the holidays when they, on our team, we call it monster training. So the kids don't have school, so they just are swimming insane amounts. Um, I go to the head coach and I say, okay, well, you added this much more water time. So what are you going to give me on the land? And so it takes time out of the water. It takes yards away that they're doing and, you know, puts it on the land. And we can use that for stretching and recovery, or we can use that for building strength, you know, whatever I feel like the swimmers need at that point. But I do agree with you that a whole lot of teams still engage in what I would call overtraining. And some people truly feel it's necessary. Some people, I think it's what they did when they swam. And so they haven't maybe progressed or kind of even thought about if it is necessary or not. With pool swimming, the longest event is um, the mile or 1500 meters in long course, 1650 in short course. And they're not doing 
marathons, you know, or Ironmans or something like that. But um, we still train them a whole lot. And there is an issue too that, especially when they're in high school, um, a lot of kids do their two practices a day with the t- club team they're on, and then maybe they swim high school too. So that's where you could throw in an additional practice. And so that's one of those things that maybe no coach really thinks they need three practices, but because they want to get their letter jacket and compete for their high school team, and there's also the requirements of their club team, that's where they throw in an extra two hours in the water a day that could actually be a bit detrimental to them. So uh, I think, you know, you're always going to have your coaches that think more is better. And then you're going to have your more, what I would call progressive coaches that say, well, we might need to be balancing this. I know when I swam, we did four mornings that were two hours each and three, five, I'm sorry, five afternoons that were two and a half to three hours each plus Saturdays, which were three hours. That's a lot of swimming. (laughs) That's a lot of swimming. (laughs) And that's not doing a high school team. That was just our club team, you know, just 10 practices a week with club team. And you just look at that and you go, that is a whole lot of repetitions to swim a 200 or a 400 or, you know, something like that. And of course at a meet, a swimmer is going to swim multiple events and they're still going to have to warm up and warm down after each event. But, um, I think we're starting to see a shift and really realizing that maybe they don't need quite as much as they need and maybe some of that time can be taken out for dry land like our mornings with our senior elite and senior one and senior two which are all our high school groups they have two mornings a week which are hour and 15 minutes and that's all on the land so they're not swimming twice in one day they do an hour 15 minutes on the land with me in the morning and then they come back and do their afternoon time in the water and then on Saturdays which are their longest practice it's a three and a half hour practice but a full hour of that is on land with me and so even though on paper it looks like a whole lot of yardage it's not near as much because a lot of that is putting time on the land. Do you ever measure heart rate variability to see if the swimmers bodies are getting stressed out and how to work with them if you do see the changes within the heart rate variability? Um, I do monitor that some, and um, I monitor other factors such as their sleep patterns. You know, when you've got these kids that are training so hard and not getting a ton of sleep, and they say it still takes them an hour, an hour and a half to fall asleep at night, you're like, something's going on systemically. Your body is not recovering like it's supposed to. If you can't get sleep, your body is functioning in a state of surviving, not thriving. And so I try to look at a lot of those scenarios, you know, the heart rate, the ability to recover, you know, go from one workout into the next. They're sore every single second, you know, and they're having all these pains that I'm like, okay, that's outside the realm of normal. And um, I'm so yes, heart rate along with other factors to try to see if they're in the healthy range of training versus overtraining. And we're in Sugarland, Texas, which is right outside of Houston, which is extremely hot and humid in the summer. And we do all our training indoors. I mean, sorry, outdoors. And every once in a while we can get some indoor water time, but it's pretty hard to negotiate. And the heat and the humidity is a huge factor too. And that's something that it's hard to take into account, but you go, these kids are swimming in hot water. I mean, it's not like they're able to be in a 78 degree pool. You can't keep an outdoor pool in Houston in the summer, 78 degrees. You're looking at 82, 84, 86, and all that just wipes the kids out. And so we had a case a couple summers ago where, um, every kid, you know, coach, they're coming to me, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. Um, They're like mentally breaking down (laughs) and, you know, their heart rates are high. They cannot recover. We're doing the exercises we do all the time and, you know, they're just falling apart. And I went to the head coach and he was extremely receptive. And I said, you know, I'm picking up some on some things in our dry land sessions that are not in the realm of healthy and normal to me. What can we do to solve this. And, you know, he was extremely receptive and we cut out a practice in the week and we shortened one and we got him indoors for the dry land training on one of the other days. And, 
Um, but yeah, overtraining is huge. And people don't think about factors like heat and humidity or water temperature or things like that as a contributor um, to the overtraining. So that's something as the dry land director, I try to make sure I help the coaches monitor that. And the other factors, like you mentioned, sleep is a huge one for recovery as well. Do you, how do you work with keeping all your swimmers hydrated, especially if they're in the pool so much and that dehydrates you? How do you make sure that they're replenishing their electrolytes and their fluids? Um, That's tough. And I'm not at their swim practices very often because, I mean, there's always kids in the water when I'm at the pool, but I'm always with the kids on the land. And for the most part, we don't allow them to get in the water or to come to dryland practice if they don't have a water bottle or the Gatorade. And especially at the higher levels, um, because of the heat and humidity that we deal with in Houston, we kind of enforce that there have something in addition to water, whether it's a sports drink or, you know, a juice or a gel or something like that to replenish their electrolytes. And with the senior level groups, um, on their days where they go swimming and dry land, they'll have a short break in between the swim and the dry land. And it may be only 10, 15 minutes, but they know that period of time is supposed to be used for getting a snack, refilling their water bottles, getting some sport drink, you know, getting something in them to get them through the next hour. And that's something that we really try to incorporate at our youngest kid groups. And I know like this summer they did a water bottle challenge. Like, they got a point for every day that their water bottle was finished by the time their practice was over. And then there was prizes at the end of the month. But that's something we really try to start very young because, you know, a kid that's doing a 45 minute practice that's seven years old is probably not getting dehydrated. They're not really swimming that many yards. But if we don't teach it young, by the time we get, they get to an older age, it's, you know, it hasn't stuck because they haven't been having to do it. And I had the case of one kid that came to me a couple weeks ago. He's in our senior elite group and you know, he's all, coach, um, I'm getting really dizzy during practice. I'm like, on the land or in the water? Cause he seemed to be doing fine on the land. He was like, no, in the water. I'm like, okay, well, I haven't been there to see it, but keep going. And he says, uh, I'm getting dizzy late in the practice. I just feel terrible. I feel like I'm gonna throw up. What should I do? So I ask a bunch of different questions and then you know, we get to what I think the most basic thing is. And I'm like, what about hydration? Are are you taking care of yourself? Are you making sure you're getting through your water bottle? Have you incorporated some Gatorade with that water? You know, whatever. Come to find out he was bringing his water bottle every day, but he was worried that it was going to make his stomach hurt to drink the water during practice. He wasn't drinking it (laughs) and no one was picking up on this. And so we went with the most basic solution, drink your water. He's 100% now, he has none of the issues. But you know, sometimes when you've got 20, 30 kids in the water, you really don't pick up on the fact that that water bottle that you can't see through anyway, it's the you know metal water bottle or the big Bubba keg, you know, it hasn't, um, none of it's been drank. So that's one of the things, especially in the environment we're in, we have to really, really, really press with the kids to, keep that water. And that's one of the funny things with kids too, is they get worried about something else that most likely won't happen, like having a hurt stomach from drinking water. And by worrying about that, it totally just screws them up in a different area because then they decide not to do that at all because they're worried about something happening. And then you get to that situation where they're dehydrated and all they need to do is make sure they're drinking water. Oh, exactly. It's, it's really funny how, you know, the kids will do that. I mean, and, and we even have kids, it's not the same as drinking water, but like you said, they get it in their head. They think they're going to be too sore from dry land to swim. And so they don't push hard in dry land. Whereas if they realized if they would push hard in dry land, that they're going to be so much better in the water because they're going to have so much more strength, but they just get these things in their head. And that's one of the interesting things working with all different ages and abilities. Our team has about 545 athletes that I see every single week. And that's from basically five years old through senior in high school. And then we get the college kids back in the summer. And just seeing the different psyche of these kids and the different things that they have fears about and all the things that go into the makeup of that athlete, there's 
so many factors, like you said, that can prevent them from being successful because they think one way or another something will happen. So when you're doing the dry land training, are you focusing mostly on the functional movements or do you put in some aerobic type exercises in there to expand their aerobic capabilities or do you leave the aerobic and the anaerobic side to the stuff within the pool? That's a great question. Um, I really leave the aerobic training to the water side, except at our developmental level. So our developmental level, excuse me, our developmental level is the little bitty ones. So kind of five, well, 10 and under is what is pretty much classified as developmental. And at that level, so much of their practice is skills and drills and working on streamlines, working on dolphin kicks, working on breathing correctly. Um, they don't get near as much aerobic capacity as they do in the older kid groups because they may swim a 25 and then coach says, okay, now this time we're going to work on this. And they swim a 25 or a 50 and, and they're doing hundreds and two hundreds, but it's just not near as much. And so at the younger kid groups, we do both the functional movements and work on the aerobic training. We do um, a lot of, I don't just make them run. I think that's boring and I think kids won't want to do it. I mean, I'm a runner, but they're not, they're swimmers. And so we combine it. We do a lot of skipping and hopping and jumping and jumping and shuffling and in all three planes of motion. And they're huffing and puffing and laughing and having fun. And they don't realize they're building their aerobic capacity, but they're also building their coordination. And that's one of the things I've seen over the years of coaching that kids just don't have the coordination and um, just the body awareness that they used to and that they need for a sport that's so detailed like swimming where there's, you know, a tiny little tweak of a hand position or a foot position or a head position can make all the world of a difference in the stroke. Um, so just giving them that coordination, giving the ability to hop with two feet or jump with two feet together forward and back is going to dramatically impact if they can do a fly kick correctly. But if I make them do it up and down the pool multiple times, I'm also building their aerobic capability. Um, with the older kids, because they are swimming back and forth down that black line so many times, I don't focus much on the aerobic conditioning at all. But I do focus on the anaerobic side, um, as I think that the land is a really great place to build that anaerobic capability without having near as much chance for overuse injuries like they would in the water if they were just sprinting all the time. And so we do that a lot of different ways. We do lots of jumping and lots of powerful movements. Um, we tweak different exercises with variability, for instance, you know, they may do a lunge, but the goal is for speed. And so they're trying to get as many as they can in the 30 seconds or whatever the time variability is. Um, they, we do circuits with the older kids. And so they may go a minute on and then have 10 seconds to recover. And then they're doing it again, trying to get as many of the reps in as they can in that minute time period. And, um, so yeah, we definitely do focus on the anaerobic on the land, but not near as much of the aerobic because if they're swimming two, two and a half hours, most days they're going to kind of check off that aerobic conditioning box. So talking about coordination and how it seems like a lot of the kids nowadays don't have a very uh, well-defined coordination patterns within their body, a lot of the stuff that you were talking about was more upright coordination movements. Do you ever... Uh, go to on-ground function and start working through different developmental phases to check to see where their coordination levels are within each developmental phase to see if that helps to boost the next phase and then the next phase so that once they get more into that those upright coordination patterns then they're able to function at an even better level because you've been working on the foundations from the ground all the way up. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. We do a lot, a lot, a lot of on-ground functional training. Um, I mentioned the upright stuff and that's, we'll do that a lot as well, but we do a whole lot of on-ground training and it's really interesting to look at the different phases. Like you said, if, you know, these kids laying flat on their belly versus on all fours versus like a crawling 
or, you know, patterns like a crab walk in all three planes of motion or like a crawl, bear crawl type thing in different planes of motion and just looking at how if they can accomplish, like you said, one phase, they can be so much better in the next phase. And it really is so true that so many of the kids have kind of missed these phases and, you know, there's a thousand different theories as to why that's happened, but um, it really is interesting that if they kind of accomplish that coordination on the ground, it really makes them so much better in an upright position, which in the water they're prone or supine, but it still is an elongated body line, which is a lot more like upright function. So uh, talking with a lot of the swimmers that I know, they bring up a really interesting point about their training tactics, especially for certain periods within their seasons. And I don't know if this is different at the, the club level than just like the high school level. But from what they've talked about is a lot of their that seasonal times that they're swimming for don't really matter and that they don't seem to push themselves as hard at meets and whatnot unless it's a qualifying meet of some sort and that's where they say everything matters and that's where they actually push why aren't these swimmers unless this is just a thing here in washington why don't these swimmers want to push for every single meet that they do to continue to push that line and that threshold of what their best uh, uh, PR or their results are for each type of uh, swimming event that they do. I think that's a great thing to bring up. And no, I don't think that's something that just happens in Washington. You know, I'm way down in Texas and we see that too. Um, There's several different thoughts that I have going into this. So swimming is a sport where, like what we've talked about, they're training large volumes throughout the season. And the way a coach will periodize their training is usually there's several championship meets per season. So usually there's a spring championship meet and there's a summer championship meet. And you might get, depending on your level, a December championship meet as well. So normally championship meets would kind of happen December, March, maybe February, but usually March and then July or August, depending on your level. Um, because there's the mindset of the need to train a whole lot of yardage and a whole lot of hours all the time, the swimmers tend to get very, very broken down physically and they're just exhausted. So if a coach were to every three to four weeks when there's a meet kind of bring their yardage and training down, the thought process is they wouldn't build a strong enough base for a big, huge drop at the championship meet, whether it's, you know, December or March or August. Um, What swimming does, unlike a lot of sports, you'll also see this in running, you'll see this in triathlon, is we have what we call a taper. So, you know, they build up, build up, build up, build up. And all the while they're swimming the in-season meets, as we would call it. And then leading up to their championship meets, a taper would happen or some teams call it championship preparation or something like that. So basically they go from swimming a whole lot of practices, a whole lot of yardage, um, really strong dry land to just gradually kind of tapering or reducing that. And there's been lots of studies that show the benefit of it. I mean, some studies even show they can have a 30% increase in aerobic capability and 20 to 25% increase in strength capability because of this taper that happens. So the thought process is if we taper them down or we rest them for every meet every three to four to week, three to four weeks, you're not giving them a strong enough base to really taper them down for those championship meets. So hearing coaches talk and hearing swimmers talk and being a swimmer myself, it's not as much, in my opinion, that they don't try hard at those meets, but it's that coaches try to say and try to help them out mentally and be like, hey, you know, your best time in a 50 is a 24-5, but you're so exhausted. The chance of you going anything close to that is slim to none. You may be a 26 
four and just wait till your championship meet when you're tapered you're going to go best time so i think it's more of a mindset not that they're not trying hard but we know their bodies are so physically broken down that the chance of them going a best time is probably slim to none and is that because we're overtraining them you know that could be a theory but also, um, with a taper, they're going to dramatically reduce the amount of training they're doing. And so your body just gets these surges of energy and strength and aerobic capability. And, you know, having been a swimmer myself and going through that, you know, you can see the dramatic difference. Because at every meet I ever went to in my life, I tried as hard as I possibly could. And then you look up at the clock and you're like, wow that's terrible. And then <laughs> three months later, you hop in for your championship <laughs> meet and you're like, how did I just drop 17 seconds? That's not, that doesn't make sense at all. I didn't try any harder, but your body was just refreshed and restored because of the taper that happened. And I do triathlons and um, running races and it's the same. You know, you're like beating yourself up every single day with your training and then you go through this taper and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I just dropped like 37 seconds per mile on that race. How did that happen? You know, and so I think that's one thing that makes an endurance sport a little bit different than other sports is that you do have the ability to kind of taper down and then perform well at the meets where your coach has placed the highest importance. How long does a taper usually last? I've seen like a week, I've seen a couple weeks. What what do you think is a good amount of time for a, a strong taper? Um, I think it's individual and I think that it's really hard on a club team where you have a lot of people in each group. You probably can't individualize it as much as you need to. Um, there's theories that the more muscle you have, the more taper you need. There's theories that the longer distance your race is, the less taper you need. Um, but I think it really is different to how each body responds. Looking at kind of the phases that you go through throughout a taper, usually the first couple days of your taper, you kind of feel awesome because you've reduced the yardage. And then you get maybe five, seven, nine days into your taper, and most people feel pretty terrible, and their moods are terrible. It's just kind of an awful environment to be in. But once you kind of hit that two-ish weeks, depending on the person, um, your bodies just are rejuvenized and you swim so well. And so I would say most full tapers are anywhere from two to three weeks. I know that my body always responds well to a three-week taper, um, but that's just something I've learned over the years. But I've learned that my first week of taper, I just have to taper back a tiny little bit, and then the next two weeks are pretty aggressive. Um, so I think it kind of depends on the individual, but usually if it's too short, then they're trying to compete at their highest level when their body's kind of going through that slump. But we'll see often if you have a meet, like we just went through um, some meets last weekend that were prelims finals. So that means they're going to compete in the morning. And if they do well enough, they'll be able to come back at night and compete in finals. And not everyone will compete in finals, but everyone's, you know, trying to get a spot in that final. And so some of our coaches did choose to what the term would be around the swimming world is they rested their kids. So they didn't go through a full taper. They didn't dramatically reduce the yardage, but maybe three days out from the meet, they just kind of reduced it a little. And maybe the last 15 minutes of dry land, instead of doing our aggressive, you know, jumping and explosive exercises, maybe we did a little more recovery and stretching and things like that. So we gave them kind of three days where they kind of felt mentally good about what they were going to do and they felt nice and strong in the water and were able to perform well but didn't go through a full taper or didn't even go five or seven days because then they might start feeling bad in the water. 
So I've seen with a lot of run runners that run really long races like marathons and whatnot, they'll do that taper where they're dropping off a lot of their mileage. And then a few days before the event, they'll go on a long run to kind of trick their body back into knowing that, hey, we are giving you a rest, but this is what we need to accomplish here in a couple of days. Do you do something similar with the swimmers? Um, I don't think quite as much because with pool swimming, the events are much shorter. And so I don't think they necessarily need that as much. And I, I mean, obviously I don't know every single program, you know what they do, but I think for the most part, they don't do quite as much of that. It kind of just tapers down, 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 down until they get to their championship meet. Um, with milers, they tend to taper differently, you know, than if you're going to swim the 100 or the 200. Um, and so they may do a little more of that, you know, some sets going into the meet where they've really got to hold their race pace for an extended period of time. Because if you've got to go 15 100s or 16 100s and a 50 back to back to back to back in your race, holding the same pace, and all you've been doing is pace work on four 100s, you're probably mentally going to freak out a little bit. And so I do think for the more distance events, you see that a little, but as a whole, not quite as much. So my final question for you is, if you had the opportunity to stand up in front of the entire swimming organization of, let's say, the United States, and you had a few minutes to talk about what you would like to see uh, change within the world of swimming or what you would like to improve, especially on the dry land side of things, what would you tell them? Wow, that's a really huge question. And um if I only had a few minutes, I'd say it different than if I had a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think just as a short bit, incorporating and really placing an importance on functional dry lane changing training, excuse me, functional dry lane training could really, really change things dramatically. I've consulted with teams in different parts of the country. I've talked to different you know, physical therapists and trainers and stuff all over the world. And seeing the inadequate amount of functional dryland training that happens is just terrible to me. And um, seeing the huge number of injuries that happen that I think are hugely related to overuse and lack of, like we talked about initially, challenging the body at the end ranges of their stability and instability so that they have the stability at the ends of the spectrum of their stroke. Um, just making sure that the teams are placing importance on that. You know, if, if I could rule the swimming world, <laughs> every team would be doing functional dryland training from their earliest competitive group. And like you said, on ground training and upright training and not loading them up with weights and looking at different swimmers I've coached in the past who've been extremely successful with functional dryland training and they go to a college program that loads them up on weights and it completely changes their body position in the water, completely changes their ability to move well and you know, they're not as buoyant. There's just so many different factors that affect how their body moves. Their stroke rate decreases. And I think just incorporating functional dryland training from the earliest group to the highest level group and trying to get away from that mindset of kind of the same mindset they have in the water, more is better. You know, more weight is not always better. More squats are not always better. More jumps are not always better but deliberate functional exercises that extremely correlate to what they're having to do in the water. So many coaches I've seen, you know, try hard to incorporate a really good dry land program. And it's not for lack of wanting to, lack of effort, but maybe it's just lack of knowledge to how to actually create a functional dryland program. I've had some different speaking engagements and I've been able to talk with coaches on different teams and they're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I love it. So what do I do? You know, they just don't, they know swimming and they know what's going on in the water and they know their kids need the strength and they know their kids need the flexibility and they know they need the stability at the end ranges, but they just don't have the knowledge to incorporate it. 
And so I think you're starting to see more people like me who specialize in the land that are coming into these programs to help out. Um, but you're also seeing coaches that say, okay, I know my kids need to do it. I'm going to just send them to CrossFit. And I'm not bashing CrossFit by any means, but it's not functional to swimming. And so I think if I had a voice, that would be my first um, order of business <laughs> is to get everyone training functionally on the land and realizing that it's not about how much you do, but it's about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Awesome, Markel. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Is there anywhere online that people can find more about what you're doing with the functional dry land training? Well, our team has a website. Um, it's firstcolonyswimming.org. And um, that tells a little bit about our team. I'm actually working on building my website right now because in addition to working with the swim team, I own my own business. Um, I train swimmers from all different teams and I consult with different teams um, and trying to get them to incorporate functional dry land training into their programs. And so I do that on the side. And as of now, I've not had a website because I've just kind of talked to different people and it's all been word of mouth, but um, the website is coming, <laughs> but I don't have it set up yet. It's actually in the works right now. So, um, so now I can't really give you that address, but um, I always love when people shoot me emails and ask me questions. Uh, my email address is coachmarkel at yahoo.com or coachmarkel at swimfcst.com. And um, I love answering the emails. And then soon enough, I'll be able to direct them to a website to get information about, you know, having me come out to their program or speak to their swimming community and um, just helping everybody start doing functional dry land training to not only prevent injuries, but just help them swim fast. And once you get your website, then I'll have that posted in the show notes. So depending on when people are listening to this episode, go take a look at the show notes anyways to see Markel's website. Well, Markel, I'm going to work with you to try and get this message out to more swimmers and swim teams as best we can. Now we have a podcast that's talking about all these functional movements that you're doing with the dry land training. So hopefully we can start changing the way people are training all their swimmers across the country and we can continue to bring home those gold medals at the Olympics. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor to speak with you about this and I'm just so passionate about um, keeping the swimmer swimming and keeping them healthy. And I don't want a swimmer to ever go through what I did where they can't swim at the level they want to because of injuries or because of even lack of strength and coordination. So I'm so honored that you had me on here to talk about this and I'm excited about getting the word out. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. And there you have it, as we finish up talking about dryland training with swimming. I have always found the whole training of swimmers to be a really interesting topic because of the way that they do a lot of their training. And like I said before, how they are one of the first kind of early stage cross-training sports out there that we see. So it's really neat to see that Markel is providing a different way to train outside of the water other than just lifting heavy weights and how she provides different functional movements that mimics what you will see in the pool in a way that doesn't overly lock people down and make them too strong for what it is that they're doing where they end up losing mobility, but they're able to keep their mobility and build a strength on top of that to improve their overall swimming. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would really like it if you could go to iTunes and leave us a quick rating and review. I do read all of the ratings and reviews, and it does help to get this podcast in front of more people. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, you will be taken right to the page to leave your rating and review. And we will see you next time.